Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, one cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the morning will be of little importance in the evening. And what in the morning was true will at evening become a lie. That's a quote by uh, C.G. Young, Carl Young, and it is on. This, it is the start of an article that I want to read to you uh, by Father Richard Rohr on his website, the Center for Action and Contemplation. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about why this uh, article is coming up for me this morning. I'll do that on the other side of the disclaimers. But um, in short, I just want to tell you I woke up in... Um, this morning, uh, with a heightened sense of growth. And then I was looking for some anchor text to talk about growth, and I couldn't find anything. I only found one thing that talked about growth as relating to uh, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and those five levels. Four of the five levels are deficit-based, and that fifth level, which is self-actualization, is growth-based. And I've talked to you all about that before. Um, I did an episode, I think sometime in September, entitled Next Level Growth. I then did an episode sometime, I think, in, I think it was either the beginning of the year. It may have been the end of last year or the beginning of this year, I don't know. But it was called Bastardized Growth. And then there have been nine additional episodes where the word growth was in the title. And I would love to just study all 11 of those episodes because I think those 11 episodes are going to tell me something about this journey that I've been on to self-actualize. And growth and growing is such a, an essential um um, such an essential part of my experiences as in, especially as I've been trying to self actualize, but I don't want to do that here. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that I woke up with the feeling of growth. I couldn't find a lot of anchor text. I went to Google to get some, uh, a definition of growth. And I was like, well, let's not call it growth. <laughs> We've talked about growth 11 times on the episode. Let's call it maturity. And I was like, oh, I don't want to call it maturity. And so I then went into Google again to search. Oh, I said, let's think about the second half of life. And I'm like, I've talked about the second half of life, but I've never really, really defined what that is, second half of life. So I'm going to attempt to to talk about this season of growth that I'm recognizing that I want to acknowledge it as something bigger than just growth. All right. It's time to acknowledge it as, as something else. Is it about maturing? it? Is it about second half of life? I don't know, but I want to share that. I want to process this out loud with you all. Okay. Hey, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist 
re delete. Let me start that over. I'm a trained and practicing social scientist and educator of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which basically means I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs of power, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, to name a few. This project is unedited and is unscripted. To know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at youranidom.wordpress.com. So let me do a little bit of housekeeping, just a little bit. Did you hear when I was doing those disclaimers, I fumbled um, a little bit. And I think that fumbling feels so spot on in terms of this this pending reflection about growth, maturing, second half of life. So this project is three years old. And uh, for the most part, um, I've been doing these disclaimers since the second season. And this, uh, and in the disclaimers, I'll usually say something like, um, I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist. And that is true. And then there was a time in the last, in the last year, I don't remember when, when I said, Hey, I should flip that. I should flip that instead of saying I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist, I should say I'm a trained and practicing social scientist and educator. And although I said it, I haven't. I haven't flipped it. And so in the last couple of recordings, I've been cognizant of it, but I'm not yet consistent. And I really want to do that. And here's why. And, and I'm going to use this as a really good segue into, the, I'm going to try to segue into the reflection. Um, I have made my income primarily as an educator. That's how I've paid my bills primarily as an educator. I'm fortunate to though that everything that I've done as an educator and I've been paid to do, I did it with through the mission or the lens of a social scientist. And that worked. But it's no longer working for me. Because the because of my maturing um as a social scientist and really ultimately as a social change agent. I have now outgrown the confines of education. I've outgrown that industry. So as long as I could do social science and do my work as a social scientist and as a social change agent within the industry, it was okay. It was a beautiful marriage, beautiful marriage. But like what happens in most marriages when they fall apart, the individuals outgrow each other or they outgrow the love or they outgrow the relationship. And that's what has happened to me. I have outgrown the industry. Um, although I am still very much appreciative and proud of my work that I do as an educator. So I'm not, I've not outgrown it so much where I'm like, eh, take it off the table, but I've outgrown it in terms of, um, it just doesn't, it doesn't define me. It is not my identity. And so because it no longer defines me as an identity, it doesn't need to go first. The social science part of me needs to go first. And if I'm honest, at some point I'm going to have to interrogate that a little bit because I think I use social science and social change agentry interchangeably, um, but they're separate. Uh, but when I say social science, I'm 
um, implicating social change, just the way I used to do before when I was doing education. I implicated the social sciences and the social and social change. And there's going to come a point where I can't, I'm going to have to make a decision. Am I a social scientist or am I a social change agent? Um, and so what, I won't do that here. So just want to let you know, I'm going to use that concept is interchangeable as of now. It won't be forever, but for now, saying I'm a social, um, social scientist also denotes that I'm a social change agent. Okay. And that is primary. That is my primary identity. And I am maturing into that. And it is awesome to see me maturing into that as my primary identity because truth be told, I always thought it was my primary identity, but I didn't require the world to see that as my primary identity. I allowed the world to see me as an educator, as an ed leader, as an educational entrepreneur, right? And I've never really required the world to see me as a social scientist. Um, um, I'm sorry, I, I need to linger here just a second. Excuse me, but it's just something challenging me right now. I'm challenged by this notion of social science and social change. Because I think people knew I was a social, okay, okay, let me, let me linger here. I think people in my world know, knew that I was a social change agent. They knew that's why I was doing education. They knew I was doing social education to promote social change. What they don't understand is that that social change is heavily, heavily driven by my training as a social scientist. Because there are many people who talk about social change that I'm coming to understand. And that social change is not grounded in the research and the principles located in, in the social sciences. And that's why I can sit at a table with another quote-unquote social change agent and we can be having completely different viewpoints and experiences. And that has happened to me. I'm like, oh, you're a change agent? I'm a change agent. Oh, we have so much in common. No, we don't. Because what drives my change work is um, would be the the learnings as a social scientist and my training as a social scientist. And I think the job that I had this past year, not the job this year, but the job that I had this past year illuminated that for me. Because here I was in an organization that was committed to change. And they were committed to do, doing change in education. And yet we were so far off from each other. And uh, you guys know, you witnessed it. It was painful. It was confusing. I didn't understand. And I remember, I remember getting to the place where I was like, you guys, we're ignoring some basic premises, some basic foundations to group think and group work and group dynamics. And they didn't understand that. I remember like group think, that's so basic. And I'm thinking, we all know what group think is. They didn't have that. They didn't, they didn't really, really understand that. You, you understand group think in terms of, it's a term that's in our pop culture, right? Oh, that's, that's group think, but not the science of it. Group think, interpersonal dynamics, social interaction. So all of those are, when you, there's a social, all of those concepts are explored through the social sciences. 
So there's the academic aspect of those words, the research, the studying of those concepts, of those of that phenomenon that my colleagues just didn't have. And I was like, huh, that is the training that I have. And it's a training that I have taken kind of for granted, which is fascinating. It's fascinating. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's good. Thank you guys for letting me linger there because I was, why am I struggling with this idea of social change and social and the so and, and, uh, social science? Why am I being challenged that I'm using them interchangeably? Cause they really are different. At the end of the day, yes, I am a social change agent. I pride myself on that. At least I'm trying to be that as much as I can as one individual, as an INTJ8 black woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from trauma, right? It's only so much I'm going to be able to do, but this is what I have dedicated my life to doing. But that's not change simply for the sake of change. It's change that's being informed by years of studying the social sciences. So <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the reflection about growth. But um, so I'm going to say that um, about three weeks ago, I was out of town. You guys know I traveled to go visit my sister. And um, one of the things that I did before having like that situation where I, didn't, I went back and I listened to the episode on um, the shadows, like, um, I don't know, shadow work or shadows or whatever. And that's where I'm talking about how I was triggered when my sister didn't invite me to ride to an event that we were going together. We were going to an event together. We were in the house together, going to the same event, the same destination. And she left me. She, she went on her own. And that triggered me. I had real emotions about it. You guys, I recorded in the midst of those emotions. And then I recorded the next day to post-process those emotions. So I'm smiling because I'm glad I recorded it. But boy, was that difficult to go back and listen to. Like, you got bigger fish to fry than to spend two episodes talking about when you were left behind by your baby sister, right? So anyway... But anyway, so before that event happened, when I was with my sister, I had started a, a, an essay um, about this identity work that I want to do. And uh, it was really interesting. I just, which is what happens when I write essays. Usually I'm, I'm thinking about something kind of like, I, I have thoughts as an NI Dom, I have thoughts. I go to my papers and I, or my notebooks and I make list of randomness that I wake up in the morning. You guys know I wake up with all this to download and I have to get it down. So either I put it down on paper or I hit the record button and I come in from, I usually come to you all when I'm trying to process the thing, not when I'm trying to record it. So on podcast number one, forget it, forget podcast number one. But most of my writings are about me recording what I've already processed. When I come to you all, I'm, I am actually doing the process. All right. I want to, I'd love to come back to this point, um, at some point about 
what this project actually is in the grand scheme of my work. It is truly a place that I'm processing things and figuring it out. And so those of you who continue to be with me in journey as I'm processing, and I'll, there are a lot of times when my processing is on repeat because I'm refining my thinking, I'm becoming more nuanced, or I might be calibrating a little bit. I appreciate that you are here to watch that evolution because that's actually what's happening. <laughs> but anyway, so I record when I'm processing, but then once I process, I want to get it out. And so uh, a few weeks ago when I was out of town with my sister, I woke up with something to record. I opened up one of my apps on my phone and I started writing. Well, I started that ref- that writing out, delineating or making the distinction that I am a social scientist first and an educator second. And gosh, that seems so basic, but it actually is quite profound for me. And I think that that's driving this, the sensation that's on me this morning about maturing, maturity and second half of life. Okay. Getting a little bit of an FI sensation, uh, just a little bit. Uh, so I think I'm stumbling onto something. So, so I started writing that essay a few weeks ago. Usually, uh, one of the beautiful things about writing with these apps on my phone is I can wake up with a thought and if I want to start writing, I go right to the app and I start writing and I freestyle it. Well, this morning I'm, I added the final touch to that essay. I'm actually getting ready to release it. No, not under, um, not on your NIDOM website, but under my primary work. And uh, so it took me about three weeks to, let's just say about a month to really write it and refine it. Um, My last essay that I wrote, I released maybe two, maybe a month, two months ago. I worked on that for two years. So (laughs) the process of it going from an idea to being published, it's not consistent for me. Right. And so that piece that I worked on for two years, it's not a perfect piece, actually, when I read it this morning. Uh, there needs to be some, I need to clean it up a little bit, but guess what? I was, I was, I wrote a meta, I used a metaphor. So I've done a lot of research around power, social power, and I walk through the world as a social scientist with that research in my head about social power. So much that it becomes, it is now situated as my common sense. And it's not fair because my common sense is influenced by the research. So when I'm interacting with other people and they don't have quote unquote common sense, well, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't have my common sense because they don't have my training. And so uh, sometimes if I care enough about the person I'm talking to, I might explain to them the research. That's informing my the, my contribution to the discussion. But most of the time, I'm like, that's just too much. I mean, it's too much. <laughs> it's just too much. So a lot of my knowledge about social power came from my, my, dissert, my PhD, my dissertation. But if I'm honest, my training as a social scientist in undergrad, I started studying power. I had an interest in power even then, right? And so you got years of, years of studying. Years of studying and taking in this information about the social world and social power. And so I had this bright idea that I was going to take all of that research and put it in a metaphor and give it to, give it to the world. 
and it, it was comprehensive. It was it was um, intended to be comprehensive and robust. And I think I did a. If I had to grade myself, I would give myself a B plus and A minus to take all of that research and all of that time study and put it into a simple metaphor and an essay. <laughs> you know, it was pretty ambitious. So that's why that took two years <laughs> to do. But anyway, so the piece that I woke up with to, uh, <laughs> I don't even know if you guys are going to listen to this. If you are a writer, you're going to appreciate this process, right? Or if you're a creative person, you this is kind of what I'm talking through, my creative process. But um, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of sounding annoying to me. But anyway, and you're like, it's annoying to us too. So anyway, a couple of weeks, a few, month ago, I woke up with this idea about delineating between being a social scientist first and um, an educator second. And then I started writing about it. And I think that art, that essay and writing it has really impacted my thinking about all of the struggles that I've been having, or all the struggles that I have, rather, um, about what I want to do for next year, 2024, about how I am strategizing to grow my business, right? So just that simple concept of identity work. Oh, goodness, this is it right here. Oh my gosh, I'm stumbling on something I did not anticipate. But I think the simple act of owning your identity, owning it, is what is what is at the heart of this feeling of growth that I'm having this morning. I think that's it. And I remember, I think I've talked about this in this project, but I remember um, reading some years ago that no one really can give you an identity. Identity, identity is personal. It's, it is subjective and you claim it. Now other people can give you a label, but they can't give you an identity. Now let's hold that for a second. Let me repeat that. Other people can give you a label. They can say, you're this, you're this, you're this, you're that. But only you can give yourself an identity. But here's the trick. Most of us, and maybe those of us who live at the margins, those of us who are under-resourced, have under, are in under-resourced um, communities, um, those of us who are coming from some kind of trauma or harm. Because when you come from being traumatized or harmed or under-resourced or marginalized, those labels become your identity. Oh, this is so good. I'm sorry. I'm going to get to this article. Um, but this is important. So when other people give you labels, because of how you're situated in power, being at the margins, being under-resourced, being harmed, that all of those are conditions of powerlessness. And because you've been without power, you take the labeling and then you make it your identity. It's not. 
So there's something liberating. There's something empowering. There's freedom and growth located in owning your identity, carving it out, defining it, owning it, and guess what? Fighting for it. That's powerful. That's powerful. Um, I did an episode um, about two years ago now. And I need to look up to see what I named it. I may have named it Identity. But in that episode, I was talking about uh, personality theory because there's an argument in the type type community, typology, um, that people get these, they take these tests and they say, oh, I'm an INTJ. And that that then becomes their identity. And there's an argument in the type community that it should not be your identity. But in that episode, I argue for it to be an identity marker. And so although, and and in that episode, I remember talking about how I understand why that saying I'm an INTJ shouldn't be my primary identity. I get that because there's so much, first of all, here's the problem with it. Because that, that single framework the um, just speaks to a part of me, my cognitive orientation. You guys hear me call it, I call it your my cognitive orientation. Like you can have, you can have a sexual orientation. Well, I believe the MBTI tells us what our cognitive orientation is, how those uh, how we engage with our cognitive functions, right? How we prioritize the co- cognitive functions and how we engage in the world through those cognitive functions, all right? And that does have a significant impact on our personality, but it's not all of what impacts our personality. Um, and so then I added Enneagram and yeah, I'm an eight. And that, that eight, it overlaps with the INTJ, right? Because my cognition is my cognition. But I then say the Enneagram is about the social emotional part of us. And I think it's about the instinctive part of us, more of that animal brain. And those of us who are, who are INTJs and we're cognitive and we're rational beings, right? I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek because at the end of the day, we all have, we are all <laughs> from the, this, the human species and this emotional part of us is there. Whether we identify with it or not, it's there, right? And so I, I especially like the Enneagram because I'm an INTJ and I, I'd love to believe that I'm primarily engaging in the world through my cognition. Yeah, that's what I believe. But come on, truth be told, look at this, the conversation I had about this conversation I had with my sister and being triggered, right? That's because the emotional part of us is still very much there. Our relationship with emotions um, can be different. But we all have that old animal brain that is very much driven by emotion and instinct. And I think the Enneagram does a really good job of capturing that. Okay. All right. <laughs> so in that episode where I was, I think, I, I think again, I think I called it identity. I'll have to double check. Um, I'm making an argument that, yeah, while you shouldn't identify with those personality systems because they're incomplete, for some of us, from some of us who have been at the margins or who have been in under-resourced communities 
and or who have been harmed. We need that. We need a framing for ourselves. Even though, even though it is incomplete, we still need it. Why? Because we have been denied our own sense of self. So somebody came along with more power and said, you're this, you're this, and you're this. And because of, from a place of powerlessness, we were like, okay. (laughs) And so then we spend the first half of life trying to be that thing and trying to do it well, right? Uh, And I'm going to, I think that's what the article is going to say. I haven't fully read it yet. But I think that the article is going to break that down as in that's what distinguishes the first half of life from the second half of life. The first half of life, you're just trying on things and you're developing skills and all that. But it's not your true self. Do you get to the second half of life for you to even be able to discover what the true self is? Right. So my argument to those in the typology community that no, being an INTJ is not mine. I have full identity, but, but if I'm now, but I say it all the same because I use it to counter the labels that the world has given me. I didn't say, I, it's, I don't know how to explain it. And then, uh, and I think I'm going to fall into a rabbit hole trying to explain it because it gets glued like I'm a woman, I'm black. I'm quote unquote, quote, curvy. I've gained, remember I was talking about losing weight. Oh my gosh. I've gained almost all of it back. I am going to celebrate. I did not gain five pounds, <laughs> but I had lost, I had gotten down to like 16 to 17 pounds and I've gained all, all of, all but five of it back. So I'm going to hang in here. But any, in the meantime, I'm curvy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, all of the things that I feel like the, 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 the labels that have been given to me for the most part, I'm like, okay. And I don't think that I struggle with the idea of being a woman, black, black. I think it's what it means. I think that's the problem. So then it doesn't speak to who I am as a person. I was thinking recently about the quote, the, the the famous quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, don't judge a person by the color of their skin, but by the character, something, the content of their heart. Let me look, let me look up that quote. Hold on a second. Okay, here it is. Judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. Boom. Okay. Now that's deep. So me going around telling people I'm a black woman says nothing about my character. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so, so yeah, I love being able to say I'm an INTJ8 because that gets closer to the character, my character, right? It, it gets closer to my character. Um, um, my orientation who I am, the substance of who I am. And so I don't know why it was necessary for me to go down that rabbit hole. I just wanted to just say like identity work is so powerful and I think it is so essential in terms of our empowerment and our liberation from spaces where we were 
situated with very little power. Okay. All right. With that out the way, <laughs> let's try to do some reading. All right. I'm going to start reading the article. Okay. It was Carl Jung who first popular popularized the phrase, the two halves of life to describe the two major tangents and tasks of any human life. Now, I want to remind you, I'm reading an article on the website, Father Richard Rohr's website. I don't know if he's the actual author. Let me scroll down. But he may have had somebody write for him. But this concept, I think he, I think even if he didn't write it, it's written in first person as though he is the writer. So let's, let's, this is from Father Richard Rohr, and he's referencing Carl Jung. I'm going to start that over. It was Carl Jung who popularized the phrase, the two halves of life, to describe the two major tangents and tasks of any human life. The first half of life is spent building our sense of identity, importance, and security, what I call the false self. And Freud, Sigmund Freud, might call the ego self. Young emphasizes the importance and value of a healthy ego structure, but inevitably you discover, often through failure or significant loss, that your conscious self is not all of you, but only the acceptable you. You will find your real purpose and identity at a much deeper level than the positive image you present to the world. Oh, this is good. So let me just process that a little bit. Um, so I love this idea that the conscious part of who we are is the part of us that we are proud of. And that's what we present to the world. I like that. And I like it because it challenges me to go deeper with myself. All right. But before I go deeper, let's just say this. I think in this project was a really a safe space for me to go deeper. Right. I remember when I started talking in this project, in this podcast about having a background in fighting, physical fighting. And I was so, 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 so embarrassed by it. I remember, I remember, I remember doing the recording and then going, are you really going to publish that? Are you going to tell the world that you have a background in fighting as an adult, physically fighting as an adult? And because as an educator, as a trained educator, like we are, we say no to fighting, we suspend kids when they fight. How am I, as an educator, going to sit there and tell the world that I have physically fought as a form of survival? As an adult woman? But, you know what I say? Tell, my grandfather would say, tell the truth and shame the devil. And I felt like it was so important for me to confront that, right? Because located inside of that experience of fighting wasn't wasn't me a bull. I wasn't a bully. It wasn't me attacking people. And I was able to get, um, I don't know if this is a word, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was able to unshame myself. See, there was shame attached to that. But the reality is I wasn't fighting to bully. I was fighting for self-protection because in each of those physical fights, someone violated me physically. So instead of me sitting back and go, oh, you hit, you hurt me. I just responded in kind. Now, what would I do today? I've thought about this. First of all, I'm too old and too overweight to be fighting. I cannot do that. <laughs> but I wouldn't do it anyway because now I'll have to lean into the systems. You know, and and and, and I, if anybody ever violates me again. And these people were mainly 
these people who physically violated me were mainly people in my sphere, my trust circle. So I won't say they were all family members, but they were in spaces of trust for you to even be in my proximity to, 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 to fit, to physically, um, uh, to try to physically harm me. So I will just do resort to, to calling the police. Although I have, you know, but there, that old brain is still there, you know, but, um, but anyway, um, in my maturing, I've just made a decision that it'll be hard. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like cringing right now. Like it'll be hard to just let somebody physically assault me. <laughs> right. I'm just going to sit there and just wait for the police to come while you're assaulting me. Like that is like, I like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But the point of the matter is what I would do is remove myself. Like if I, so whereas when I was younger and that would happen and somebody would threaten me physically, I didn't back away. You're not going to intimidate me. And I would lean into it. Let's do it. Let's go. Whatever's going to happen, right? It was a form of, so either you were physically assaulting me or you were intimidating me, threatening with, threatening me with physical assault. And so what I would do today is I would just walk away, right? I just would remove myself from the situation, right? That's the mature me. Right. But I share that story with you all because I, that was an experience that I had. And I was so ashamed of that. And I thought that that, it just, when I think of, and I forced myself to release that out into this podcast. And some of you might be thinking, well, you are an alias in this podcast. You're anonymous. For the most part, I am. I just recently met somebody at a restaurant. <laughs> And, um, I read somebody at a restaurant and for some reason, I just thought that that person would really like podcast number two. So I introduced, I don't do that. I tell people about podcast number one, never about podcast number two. Uh, so I think that's it. There are a few people on who listen to me who know like my name, but for the most part, this is an alias, but let me tell you what doing that episode about fighting and releasing that. Let me tell you what that did for me. It, it freed me. It gave me freedom and it helped, and it was, it allowed me to know a little bit more about myself. So confronting that thing that was embarrassing and shameful, confronting it, I learned. And as a result, I was able, I'm able to go in the world now and tell people about my background in fighting. And I can do it with no, no intimidation, no shame. But I had to confront it. And that's what happens. That's what happens a lot in this project when I'm processing with you all. I'm confronting things, right? Okay, getting back to the reading, becoming conscious. So in this project, I'm becoming conscious of the things that are not pretty about me. The other thing that was very shameful for me to confront was the trauma. It's still hard though. And I had a guy friend of mine who said to me in the last two months, and I'm, I got to wrestle with that a little bit. But what he said was, if anybody learns this other side of you, it's going to lose, you're going to lose some credibility. You're going to lose respect in the, in the work that you're doing in the world. And he's, he's kind of right. But this is the other part of where I'm at in this moment of growth for me. I don't care anymore because while 
me telling people that I come from a background of trauma and harm, while it might make me lose, make me lose credibility with other people, with some people, I don't want to serve those people anyway. Because harm and trauma are very real things. And I'm not the only one in the world who's gone through it. As a matter of fact, they say most people have gone through some form of trauma. We're just not cognizant of it. And so that is part of, I'm embracing that more and more and more about the work. It's not fun. And I think, and I'm going to move off the topic of trauma. I think the other part of growth for me in this morning that I'm waking up with is about, I think once you really, really confront something, then you can let it go. And I think you all have been listening to me trying to confront this. There's a, there's a type of trauma that I have dealt with that I've kept very private. I've been very secretive about. And in this season, in the past five to six months, last five months rather, I've been trying to give it, name it, give it visibility, to become unshamed by it, to become unhaunted by it, to become uncontrolled by it. I still have some work to do. But when I think about things that I've talked about the last five months, a year ago, I would have never. And I'm, yeah, I wouldn't have, ne- I would have, ne- I wouldn't have never, <laughs> I would have never done that. And so there's growth there. So I like this line in this uh, paragraph where it says, but inevitably you discover But inevitably you discover, often through failure or significant loss, that your conscious self is not at all, is not all of you, but only the acceptable you. And so I'm bringing all of, I'm bringing more and more of me into my consciousness of self, basically. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. In the second half of life, the ego still has a place, but now in the service of the true self or soul, your inner and inherent identity. Your ego is the container that holds you all together. So now its strength is an advantage. Someone who can see their ego in this way is probably what we mean by a grounded person. I I had to go back. I had paused you guys again. I had to go back and reread that. And I think what that means for me is that in the first half of life, I was doing ego work under someone else, under an identity somebody else gave me, number one. And according to other people's values, what other people think is important. Um, But what this paragraph is saying, as I understand it, is Now I'm going to use my ego in service to what I think is important. In service to what my identity is. And, you know, it's just making me think a lot about this bump that I've been in with my heart coach. My heart coach is what I call my therapist. And we've been working together for seven years. And we've had bumps before. But this year, we can't get out of the bump. Because I think the bump is significant. I think the bump is indicative of something greater. And so mm-hmm. 
I've been trying to, she has been, so even, we each have been trying to understand this bump, like what is this, right? And one of the things that she's been theorizing is that because of the stress related to my, uh, the medical emergency in our family, my person is in dealing with stage four cancer. Um, and because of that, uh, it is just sending me to a darker place, probably maybe um, dropping into more of my lower self. So we think about different levels of health. We have average, we have healthy, excuse me, we have above average, average, and then um, unhealthy behaviors. Because I think healthy is considered average. I think you have to go above average. I think I think being above average is more than just being healthy. But anyway, that's just a separate note that I just wanted to process. So I, th- I think she's trying to suggest that because of the stress that I'm going through with my person and the relationship, uh, the the kind of relationship I have with that person is just sending me into probably lower versions of myself. And that is a possible theory. It really is. But I have had a different theory. <laughs> it's kind of related, but I think because I in in season six, the first half of the year I was season six with you all. And I kept talking about, I'm in two storms. I'm in two storms. There's this medical emergency and then this storm I'm having with work, right? But really, if you think about it, both of those storms were storms that were existing. I just, they were already existing. But guess what? I was, I accepted those storms as my reality. So something happened in the first half of this year where those storms that I had been living in for years, for different reasons though. Like it was, I wasn't in this job, the job that I was in at the beginning of the year. I don't have a history in that particular job. There's no history with that person having cancer. So there was, there was newness to the storm that gave it a peak. But when I really sit back and I think about those two storms, I have been in those storms for a while. And just the storm, the nature of the storm, it just been, it became acceptable. It it was just, this is just what life is. It was so much, I didn't even know it was a storm. So I don't know how, you know, you talk about an iceberg, right? Most people think about the iceberg in terms of the tip, but the iceberg has this complete underwater essence or matter. All of it is the iceberg. Well, you only see the tip. Well, I think that's what happened in the beginning of the year. Those storms began to become visible to me as though there was a tip. But there was this whole history, this underwater element to, to it. And I think because of that tipping point for, for me, it forced me to start asking myself some real difficult, um, important questions about who I am, how am I showing up? How am I going to interact in the world? And I think she then was on the front line to that shift. I started shifting this year. And I think we shift every year. Honestly, I think those of us who are growth minded on, in, on track for self-actualization, I think we shift all the time. But I think there was something significant about this shift. And I'll, only time will help me to clarify that.
if this is just another shift or if this year was truly a significant shift. And she being my heart coach and meeting with her weekly, she could see it and she could experience it. And I'm, I don't want to fall into too far of a rabbit hole, but I do need to share this with you because this is part of the growth part for me that I can feel. I had been playing in that room with her for seven years, for six years. I had been playing, but I didn't know I was playing. And I don't say I was playing to say I had been lying in the room. I wasn't lying, but I was I was performing a version of me that I thought I, that I just thought it's hard to explain this. It's hard because I want to say on one hand, I want to say I was performing a version of me that how do I give, I'm going to put you on a pause. I need to figure this out. Hold on a second. Okay, let me try it this way. I was performing a version of me that I had adopted. So this version of me had been given to me. For the most part, I think there was some me in it. For the most part. And I adopted it and I owned it. And I was walking around doing this version of myself. And then I got to a place this year where I realized... That that version is not the core me. It is not the most authentic me. Which is fascinating when you think about all the work I do with personality theory. See, I've been studying Myers-Briggs for 20 plus years. The Enneagram is new, newer. So I've been with the Enneagram for about five years now. A little less, maybe four years. But that's still that's still an investment of time. So all this that I've been learning about being an INTJ and you mean there still was an imposter happening? Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I think honestly, as I sit here and I'm processing this with you guys, what's what's, what's happening in my head right now is see the INTJ me it's a me that I do suffer, but I've learned it. I've learned how to, how do I explain this? I, the INTJ part of me, I, okay. The INTJ part of me has value in the world. In terms of my work, there it is. There it is. The INTJ me struggles in personal relationships. It always has. But the INTJ me thrives in my work. Because it's the cognitive part of me, right? And all of the other parts of me, the emotional, the social parts of me, I can just push, push that. I can repress it, suppress it, push it away, ignore it, pretend like it doesn't matter. And I can just throw myself in work and I'm whole. And look at how amazing I am. Look at what I can produce, right? Because in you know, and I was I went back and I listened to an episode I did um, in season six about the model, and it was really about me exploring being ENTJ because there's so I do INTJ at work so well, 
it all you can almost call me an ENTJ because <laughs> when I'm at work I'm just so I'm on it I'm I'm smooth like I'm just so my TE is the bomb my extroverted thinking is just the bomb it's on it it's on fire like get out the way <laughs> there's a song move itch and I'm not gonna say the word. it's a curse word get out the way I don't even know who sings it but that's kind of like my TE you better get out the way because I'm coming in full force right and then I can come home and then there's nothing because I'm not attending to the other parts of me. And I think that's what the eight has been, has given me a gift to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not just all cognition, sweetie. You're not just cognition. There's this other, there are these other um, features to you that that map hasn't put in your face. So while you're thinking you're walking up right because of the, oh, I'm going to walk up right, I'm an INTJ. And honestly, what it was happening to me right around the time that I started embracing the Enneagram, I started in, in embracing that tertiary function, FI, introverted feeling. So it makes sense. And some people say that that tertiary function begins to blossom when you turn, when you get older, like your 40s. So that made sense, right? I'm going to embrace the FI, but what the nature of that FI. <laughs> and I don't, there was a moment where I wanted to put all of the Enneagram eight and assign it to tertiary feeling. And I, that's definitely not true because in the eight is the eight is part of the instinctive triad in the Enneagram. It's very gut. It's very oriented. I don't know if you guys just heard me snap my finger, but it's very instinctive. That's the, that's because my NT, my intuitive and my thinking coming together. There have been so many things that I, there's, there are things that I know so well, so intuitively and now so rationally together. I ain't got to process it. I can act immediately. It looks like I'm acting without thinking. That's not true. So I've already done so much processing through my intuition and through my thinking function. You know how they say, don't get ready, stay ready? That's how I am, it, particularly as it relates to work. I don't have to get ready. I already am ready. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, anyway, so the Enneagram just presented more of me. And I just think that the the two storms that I hit this year at the beginning of the year were so painful that the earlier iterations of me no longer could wasn't helping. The way that I was functioning in the world as an INTJ wasn't enough to, to contend with those two storms. These storms pushed me to a deeper level of authenticity. And I know I have more work to do. But I am, I sit, I was, I was sitting in my house yesterday because I've been with my family for the holidays and just being with my person, um, just trying to figure out how, what is it going to mean to be a caregiver to her as, you know, you know, heaven, heaven forbid she declines even more because it is not looking good. So I had, I came home, I've come home, I've been staying a lot of, spending a lot of time here. So I came home, I sat in my house just with solitude and nothing on just, and I've been thinking like, I am literally not the same person I was a year ago. I feel so different. 
And I think about all of the people in my life that I interact with. Mm, Those relationships feel so strained to me because I am not who I was a year ago. It feels that way. I don't know. I don't know. Time will tell if it's true, but I feel so different. And I think that those storms force those, those two storms did two things. Number one, they revealed to me that the way I was functioning um, just wasn't, um, um, just wasn't, um, just wasn't, it wasn't serving me. It wasn't, it wasn't helping me to problem solve. It wasn't really helping me to confront the challenges that were in front of me and to get out from it, you know, and like, to a certain extent, how do you problem solve a term, a terminal illness, you know? Um, so I, I, I think there's a better way of saying it, but for now, please just trust me when I say those two storms showed me that the, the identity work that I was doing as an INTJ wasn't enough. And that there was all of this data, this information that was being, that was available to me through the Enneagram 8 that I needed. And I would say that, I would say that, you know, you guys have heard me talk about testing in the Enneagram as three numbers. It was a one then it was an eight, then it was a five, one, eight, five. It was some, it was, those three numbers have come up on repeat. And I had already resolved that I was an eight. I had, I, um, in season, uh, in season one, when I started this project, I did a several episodes where I was like juxtaposing eight to one, eight to five, one to five, right? Just really, really delving deep into those. Uh, numbers as it relates to that framework. And I came out really believing that was an eight. Well, this year, I know I am. And what I real, and I said this back in season one, which is 2020, those weren't my best episodes. But if this is interesting to you, go check it out. Go back to the 2020 because I, it was an episode where I entitled the sanitized. I don't know if I said it was something to the effect of being a sanitized eight. That I've been an eight all along in the world that didn't want me to be an eight. So I sanitized myself. Because being an eight represents all of this negativity that I was trying to divorce myself from with my dad. And I don't want to be that way. So I was cleaning myself up. And... And what I've recently thought about is I wasn't just sanitizing myself from my dad. I was sanitizing myself from my mom. And I wish I could share with you an article. I know I saved it. It'll be part of those newsletters whenever they come out. But there was an article that I read and saved that talks about a lot of our adulthood comes from us trying to distance ourselves from the negative attributes of our parents. Like we saw negative attributes of them and then we didn't want to do that, right? And then we tried to be something, a cleaner version of them. 
And I think that that's how I came out as a one. And I think in many ways, um, five is a place I go to when I'm stressed. And so if I linger in that stress long enough, you'll think I'm a five, but I'm not. So eights, eights drop down into a five when they get stressed, right? And sometimes it's necessary to drop down to a five just because the five steps back, becomes more analytical, removes themselves from the world. And that's necessary, but you, an eight should never live in the five, right? So I have come to peace with how I was testing as a one and a five. Um, but I know I'm about 98% certain from this year that I'm an eight. And those two storms kind of brought that to my service. And once I embrace that, like once I really, really go in there and embrace that eight, a lot of things open up for me. A lot of, a lot of understanding comes to the table. Like, oh, now, oh, that's what I was doing. And it helps me to better calibrate as I do this thing called second half of life. Because we're not going to do second half of life as an imposter. As a matter of fact, that's counterintuitive. You can't go into the second half of life if you're still being an imposter. So I'm sorry I derailed on that par- that paragraph, but that was so important. That whole idea that um, you, your ego becomes the service of your true identity. And that's what my heart coach is seeing. She's seeing... My ego coming forth to be me, not to be the sanitized version of myself, not to be an acceptable version of myself, but to be me. I'm going to keep reading. And now I guess I'll start bringing, try to bring closure. Ah, let's see here. Going to the third paragraph. Young writes his own experience. It was only after the illness that I understood how important it is to affirm one's own identity. Excuse me. How important it is to affirm one's own destiny. In this way, we forge an ego that does not break down when incomprehensible things happen. An ego that endures, that endures the truth, and that is capable of coping with the world and with faith. Then to experience defeat is also to experience victory. Oh my God, that is so powerful. Oh my God. Oh my God. Ooh, I'm sorry. You guys probably like, we don't get why you're having a reaction to that. I need to read that again. Just, okay. It was only after the illness that I understood how important it is to affirm one's own destiny. In this way, we forge an ego that does not break down when incomprehensible things happen. That was what happened at the beginning of the year. Incomprehensible things were happening. And what came from that? Because I couldn't fall apart. I had to rise to the occasion. An ego that, I'm going to read again, an ego that endures, that endures the truth and that is capable of coping with the world and with faith. Check this last sentence out of that paragraph. Then to experience defeat is also to experience victory. And my God, that's the growth part for me this morning. That's that's the maturing that I feel. I feel victorious. Do I have a lot of work to do? Oh my God, yes. Do I have some things that I haven't I got I got on my plate that I gotta really figure out? It's gonna be serious if I don't figure it out. So I I have a little stress 
there's some stress, uh, there's some stressful things that I gotta contend with. Yeah. But I am doing these things. I'm confronting the stress in an authentic way. Now, I wanna be, I'm gonna tell the truth, Shane the Devil, I still have some authentic, authenticity, authenticity work to do with my family. And I'm, I'm processing that. I'm doing it. I practiced a little bit. And I'll just say this for the record. Prior to this illness, I dealt with family in doses, you know. But since this illness, I'm with family all the time, right? So you can go, I can go in and situationally be with people and then leave out. But when you got to be with them all the time for a long experience, periods of time, it really has challenged my authenticity with them. So now I got to confront that. So I have to come back to you guys and let you know how that works out. I'm going to keep reading. In the second half of life, we discover that it's no longer sufficient to find meaning in being successful or healthy. We need a deeper source of purpose. According to Young, meaning makes a great many things endurable. Perhaps everything. No science will ever replace myth, the communicator of meaning. And a myth cannot be made out of any science. Myth is the revelation of a divine life in man. It is not we who invent myth. Rather, it speaks to us as a word of God. Science gives us explanations, and that is a good start. But myth and religion give us meaning, which alone satisfies the soul. God, that's good. This is so good. I was a little thrown off by the use of the word myth, but I think I understand like the myth is the the revelation of the divine life in man. I really like that. Science doesn't give that. Science doesn't give us meaning. Spirit does. And what happens when we are denying that spirit because of an impostered version of the self that we thought we had to own up to? That just just can't work. I'm going to keep reading. Young says that during the second half of life, our various problems are not solved so much by psychotherapy as by authentic religious experience. That's interesting because let me let me, let me finish that paragraph. Young had a significant influence on Bill Wilson, a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thus, Wilson also emphasizes that a vital spiritual experience is the best therapy of all. A vital spiritual experience, according to Wilson, is the foundational healing of addiction, much more than mere recovery, which is just getting you started. In the classical three stages of spiritual life, recovery of itself is purgation? Purgation? Purgation, but not yet the true elimination of or divine union. I got to look that word up. But let me tell you what this paragraph is saying to me. Because uh, one of the things that's coming to the table in this bump that I've been having with my heart coach is I'm like, there's a spiritual piece here. My spirituality is not your spirituality. And that's part of what's causing the gap. That there are some truths that are that are important to me that come from my that that come from my spirituality, and you're trying to ground me in science. You're not grounding me in spirit. 
And even if you did, whose spirit or what spirit would it be? And this is the bump that I'm having with her because I'm making her confront her own philosophy. Because prior to me, she'd be like, yeah, I, I believe in connecting to the spirit of a person. And, and I believe all of that's true. But there's a scripture that says to whom much is given, much is required. She's interacting with a person, i.e. me, that is heavily grounded in self-actualization. And I was going to say my the training of the social scientist where our work overlaps because she's a psycho she's a uh, she's a psychiatrist psychotherapist or whatever um i was and i was i was actually looking for like what would happen if i just look for a new therapist so i did that yesterday it was the first time in seven years and something said just look let's just see what was out there and then i was like i have always been drawn to people who um who hold a phd um, who are like deeply have doctor a doctoral understanding of this of of the work, and so I was like, yeah, that may not be serving me right now, but I am still very much drawn to that. But anyway, so she, um, I think that I bring a lot to the table with my training and then with my convictions and then how I live my life. And I'm not trying to sound uppity. I don't mean to sound that but way, but I am a person. I, you know, they say, I would say to my students all the time, don't talk about it, be about it. A lot of people walking around in the world talking about the things that they as they believe in, the, the, the values that they have, but they're not walking in it. I am a person that am committed to walking in those convictions. So much that I invite people I welcome the feedback. I welcome the critique, right? Because I don't want any disjointedness. Not many people can say that. I'm actively trying to live out those values, which sounds very type one, doesn't it? It could be, whatever. I'm very active. I'm very committed and I'm invested in it. I invest time. I invest energy and I invest money. Doesn't mean I'm superior. Not at all. Well, I think it's safe to say that it does mean that when I'm interacting with a person, especially giving them access to my psychic energy, my psychic world, they need to understand how much I'm bringing to the table. And you better, you're, you need to be able to buckle up and do the work with me. And she, one thing she does say, she said, you do a lot of work out of the room and I want to be able to match that. Well, I don't know if she can. That's something I'll have to do a separate reflection on that. That's just something I'm coming to terms with. There's a there's something I want to process here because um, they say type eights get angry with people who are weak, and I was like, I don't understand that. Like, I think when I feel that people, my commitment to justice is to take care of people who are weak. I don't get angry with people who are weak, but what I'm realizing now is I do get angry with people who are misinformed willfully misinformed like you are walking around with a phd or a psyd and i need to explain some stuff to you you should already know that and i guess it makes me very angry when people are not as smart <laughs> as they profess and i'm all, yeah and because this is the thing i first of all I don't walk around saying i'm smart but i do believe i'm fairly intelligent but here's the difference with me. I have an appetite to keep learning. 
So if there's something I'm dropping a ball with, I even say it in this project. If I got it wrong, let me know. If I got it wrong, hook a sister up, right? I want to grow. There's something about her that is not open for the growth, even though she says she's open for growth. And she might be open for growth, but here's a power dynamic that I think is at play. She doesn't want to acknowledge it. I think there's something powerful about being in a position that she's in. So they talk about some professions having like a godlike orientation, like, um, like uh, surgeons, right? People who can save your life. You can, I can see you having a God complex. And I think I would imagine as a therapist, you can have a, a God complex because you can get it to somebody's psyche. So, yeah, I think that there's a power thing, power, uh, dimension of power here. And I think that she doesn't want to learn from me. And I've, I've presented it to her and I said, so here's what's fascinating. And this is, this is really at the heart of the anger that I have towards her. There are things she doesn't know that she should know. I don't even think I'm, I'm angry about that. I think it is the fact that now I have to teach her. And I don't get credit for teaching her. You guys know I like credit for things. So to, to, to put this, and I have to close, but to put this in perspective is this. When one of the things, I, one of my mentors, how she lives her life is something that I, I aspire to do. So, so she's an educator. Um, I, and I guess she's almost 80 years old, right? Um, white woman, and she's a nun. <laughs> so anyway, so those, those points I wanted to share with you. Well, she puts herself on all like committees. She volunteers for committees. She volunteers to write, and all of this thing. All while she's contributing to these spaces, she's learning. So. While on one hand, it's like, wow, you're very generous with your time. You Look how you're volunteering. You're spreading yourself so thin. But that's her way of staying updated in her craft. Because you learn from your environment. So how you understand? So here you are. And I'm going to go back to my heart coach. Giving therapy to somebody that's very invested in their training. You know I'm bringing that into the room. Not be, It's just because of who I am. And you get to learn from me and don't have to, you don't have to pay me for learning. That's fine. But then you don't have to acknowledge that you're learning from me. That's the problem. The problem that I'm, there's something you don't know. I'm teaching you and then you don't give me credit for teaching you. As though you're on, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to come back to process that. Because I've been really, really thinking about the anger that I have. And I told her, I told her last week, I said, I'm very, very angry with you. I'm like really angry with you. And I told her because it, it took me a minute to realize that. What am I thinking? What the hell are you angry with this woman about? There it is. Just that. So anyway, <laughs> you're probably like, you're telling us too much stuff, too much today. Uh, let me get back. Uh I like this idea of of the spirit being such an essential part of the self and and it gives it giving meaning and then when you do hit hardship if it it doesn't take it doesn't destroy you when you know you are walking in meaning and that's how I feel when I'm working with kids right no matter how difficult it is with kids it is my purpose and so 
the difficulty that I experience with kids never, never overrides my purpose. Never. So I was like, well, it was a bad day, but oh well, right? Because the purpose drives me. And I, so I read that paragraph really resonates with me. I'm going to keep reading. The unity of encounter with a power greater than you res, re, resituates. I'm learning new words. Resituates the self inside of a safe universe where you don't need to be special, rich, or famous to feel alive. Those questions are resolved once and for all. The hall of mirrors that most people live in become becomes unhelpful and even bothersome. Now aliveness comes from the inside out. This is what we mean when we say God when we say God saves you. That's a powerful line right there. Now aliveness comes from the inside out. God is good. I'm gonna keep reading. Young believes we can do damage, therefore, by petrifying our spiritual experience when we try to name it, to express God as an abstract idea. Before you can explain your encounter with the divine as an idea or a name that then must be defended, proven, or believed, simply stay with the naked experience itself, the numinous, transcendent experience of allurement, longing, and intimacy within you. This is the inner God image breaking through. No idea of God is God of itself. But the experience of God's action in you is what grounds you and breaks you wide open at the same time. God, that's good. Oh, my goodness. Now, I'm not going to stop and elaborate on that because that's more God talk. You guys know I don't do a lot of God talk here. But my goodness, just check this out. Like, just the, I love what this paragraph is saying. Like, like, let's just come back from the construct of God. Let's stop naming and fighting and defending. Does God exist? Let's move away from that. Let's instead deal with the energy of it, right? The allurement, longing, and intimacy that's within. You know, and I've just been thinking about how, this is where I've been thinking a lot about intimacy and how we're not even able to have intimacy with the self. You know what? I'm going to leave. This is a, this is a separate reflection. I need to, I need to just ended um, because I think we're it's really going into this God spiritual construct and I think with what I think that because it's just one more paragraph that I didn't read to you also you you can check out that article you can go look it up um, two halves of life um, on the website Center for Action and Contemplation from October 12 2015 but I think the, the gist of this is that when you get into the second half of life you're in a more spiritual space the place of meaning, the place of authenticity, the space of truth. And that's how I feel. That's how I feel this morning. So is it growth? Is it maturity? Is it acceptance? Is it just relaxing and leaning into? You guys, the most significant thing that I'm doing, and I'm going to close with this, this spiritual experience that I had 20-something years ago. I'm going to close here. Um, I'm going to close here, okay, with this story. So I was 24, <laughs> so almost 30 years ago. Oh, my gosh. I'm, 20, I'm 52, y'all. I'm not 54 yet. But when I was 24, I did an internship in Washington, D.C. And... Um, uh, 
That's not even relevant. I think I had to say that because I had to figure out where I was at in my life. At the time of this internship, I had just gotten into church, like on my own. See, I was born and raised Catholic. That was my mom's doing, right? And then I went, I went to Catholic schooling from first to eighth grade. So that was that spirituality and all of that was coming through the leaders of my school, my teachers, the principal, the nuns there, right? When I started coming into my own, taking control of my spirituality, at around 14 years old, I identified as an atheist. And that's what I did from almost like 14 to 24. And about 10 years of atheism, of maybe 13 to 23. So right around 23, I then take myself out of atheism into Christianity, but I do it now. I don't go back to Catholicism. I'm now going to Pentecostalism, right? Which is like the exact opposite of atheism, right? Because one of the things that I love about Pentecostalism is the the mysteries are, um, I think that people who are Pentecostal are more connected to God in terms of miracles and mysticism, Right? That we can read about God, these miracles of the past. But I think Pentecostals are just do a better job at saying the God that did miracles of the past in the Bible is still the same God today. And so they just, and they look for not like theoretical miracles, but like real physical miracles, right? So anyway, so I was in that, just, this is important because this experience that I had, you're going to be like, what? All right. So in the space of now me being in this Pentecostal space where these miracles and there's um, this transsensory ex- world was opened up to me, right? And I, I'm i going to have to at some point really sit with, what do I think about that now? Because I'm not in Pentecostalism. I haven't been doing Pentecostalism almost 20 years now, right? So I went through that Pentecostal phase of my life for about 10 years. I'm not in that anymore, but there are parts of that that I still cherish as an ex- this example I'm about to give you. So once I was opened up to this whole transsensory world, right? That the world isn't beyond more than what we can touch, 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 taste, feel, smell, and hear the five senses that the world exists beyond the five senses. Once I, once I was introduced to that, like, oh, so I started having these transsensory experiences. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know what I really want to do with this as a fact. Like the rational part of me is really, remember I talked about when I get into this non-rational space, it's very hard, but I'm going to stay the course here. So, and I'll have to come back and process it later. So I started having these experiences that um, if you are at NI Dom, you'll be, people know the NI Dom, they say we can predict into the future, right? We can see things. Well, I started having that. Mm, um, I don't know if I started having it, but I started, I started making sense of it through a more God miracle, supernatural framework. So I think there are things that were already part of me as an NI Dom, but now I was making sense of it through this 
more through this religious context. Okay. So I would have visions, right? I'm saying this to you because in Idoms, we see things. We can see things before other people can see them, right? So I had these visions. And some of the visions were sensory. So you could have like an audit. You probably, you guys are going to be like, if you don't get help somewhere, please get help at charter. Like, cause this sounds weird, doesn't it? I'm just going to stay the course. I'm just going to finish you. Anyway, so I, so you can have, you can have an auditory experience. You can have a, a tactile experience, right? Beyond. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So one of the experiences that I had was of me being pregnant. And it, and it, and I can't explain it to you. Like there would be a flash of me being pregnant. I've never been pregnant, you guys. It was a conversation I'd have with my grandmother. She was like, well, have you, how do you even know if you can make a baby? Have you ever been pregnant? No, I've never been pregnant. I think I could, probably not now because of my age, but anyway, so I would have a, a, a sensory, a flash. It would be, it would, it would just be a flash and it would be a sensory experience where I could see me being pregnant and I could feel it. And that happened for a couple of years. And then I started having an experience of giving birth. There was a flash of a moment where I felt like I was giving birth. Anyway, I always interpret. I mean, I'm saying this. I'm closing, y'all. <laughs> Am I going to regret saying these things out loud? Anyway, so I I, um, I always interpreted that sensation because it was both a visual sensation and it was a tactical sensation. I could feel it. I always interpreted that to mean the work that with empowerment. That's my work. And this morning, it occurred to me that that birthing wasn't as much about my work, but about my authenticity and giving birth to the true me that can then go on and do the work in an expansive way because now I'm being more authentic and being more honest. And it's the work. And so I at one point struggled with when I read Father Richard Rohr's book, The First Half of Life, The Second Half of Life. I'm like, okay, this, the first half of life was synthetic. It was about ego. And that's where a lot of my work was located. Does that mean in the second half of life, I'm not doing the work? I don't think that today. I think what it means is that I'm doing the work in a more authentic way, in a more honest way, and as a result, in a more expansive way. And I'm really looking forward to 2024. I, I have four more episodes, excuse me, three more episodes after today. Um, I'm getting ready to go quiet in the month of January. I have three more episodes to do after today. But um, I think what is really hitting me this morning is this idea around authenticity, being fully who I am, fully understanding it understanding it, owning it, and practicing it. Because when you've practiced being an imposter for so long, you don't just have a moment like, oh, I'm going to give birth to the authentic me and oh, voila, I am here. No, you got to practice that thing. you got to practice because it's what does practice do in, in education when we teach students something and then we give them a lesson and then we send them home. you got to practice it, then we loop back to reinforce it, right? You gotta practice the authenticity. It's not just giving birth to the authentic you. It's not just owning it. It's practicing in it and reinforcing it. 
And so as I think about the what I'm doing moving forward uh, in the work in an, in an authentic, expansive way, I'm super excited, y'all. I'm super excited and I'm very glad that this project has been a gateway for me to practice my authenticity privately. Because next year in 2024, one of my resolutions would be, it's going to be, I'm going to practice authenticity, authenticity out loud. See, I've been practice, practicing it privately with you all for three and a half years. Next year, I will begin practicing it out loud. And all the learning that's going to come from being authentic out loud. You can, and, and, and I'm going to keep this project going so that I can process process the practice, if you will. Hey, you guys, if this reflection is at any value for you, please give it a heart. If my conversation about authenticity and learning the you, the authentic you and owning that and beca- and that authenticity becoming your true identity and not the identity, the labels that somebody else has given to you when you're at different places of power. If this conversation or even the conversation around God and spirituality and the transsensory experience if any of this conversation connects to conversations you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. It's a really helpful way for me to connect with like-minded people, for me to bring myself to those people and to for you to bring those people to me. So please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about has caused some randomness in you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at urinidom, Twitter or X, urinidom1, Facebook and YouTube, urinidom. Let me give you your assignment. I think I'm just going to ask you to, about the authentic you. Like, what is the authentic you? What really is it? How do you know it? How do you know that to be the most authentic part of you? Just like the line says, inevitably you discover often through failure or a significant loss that your conscious self is not all of you. Have you had that experience the falling upward experience where you've had a significant loss, a significant failure to determine the authentic you that's been sitting underneath the surface. Think about it. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.